before we get started here, I just am so thankful for the Lord's provision in our life. I'm just so thankful that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter the circumstances that change, no matter the difficulties or the struggles or the sufferings that we face, the Lord remains the same always. He has never and will never change no matter what we face or go through in this life. And no matter how our life and our circumstances change, he does not. He is steadfast and I am so very thankful and grateful for that truth. So, okay, back to the doctrines of grace, though. We are talking today about effectual grace, and my hope is to try to run through these as quickly as I can, giving them a fair amount of time to look at each of these points that I have compiled here, and then at the end, again, have some Q&A, because I think that's really helpful. If you did happen to listen to the audio from two weeks ago, we had some really great questions, but because I am not recording them, I did not include the Q&A in the audio. One of the reasons being is because I don't think it's fair to hear just my answer, in particular if I'm not actually addressing the question someone asked. So there's, there's always the danger of saying, well, here's your answer, and the person's sitting there thinking, that's not really what I asked. So I did not want to put my answers on there without the questions being recorded as well. And so if you're wondering why, that is why. The same today, we just don't have the capability to be able to record questions and what I'm saying through this microphone as well. So just just know that. But when we are talking about the doctrines of grace, I hope you have seen whether you are talking about um, Calvinism or Arminianism and, and anything really in between, what we're actually talking about is God's plan of redemption. So our understanding of what the Bible says about how God goes about saving and redeeming his creation, his creatures, in particular men and women. And so when we look at the doctrines of grace, we see that as we begin with the first point, we are dead in our sin. That is, we are totally incapable of, of anything. And that's really the baseline or the foundation of the doctrines of grace. If we don't buy into that, and when I say buy in, what I mean is if we don't see biblically warrant for that position, then all of the rest of the points really can't stand. There's, there's nothing that they can stand upon. And so we are dead in our sin, completely and totally incapable of doing anything. And what we then move to is that God chooses according to his sovereign will, whom he will save. We call that sovereign election or unconditional election. And then because of that, because we are dead and because God chooses, we see that he sends his son Jesus to die to secure the benefits of salvation for those whom he has chosen, his, his elect. And we call that particular redemption. And there is the case I made two weeks ago, an actual effective particular redeeming point to the atonement of Jesus Christ. He dies for those whom God has drawn to himself, whom he has chosen and predestined before the beginning of time. And then we come to today. So if we are dead, if God chooses, if he dies for those whom he chooses, then we have to somehow have these benefits applied to our lives. We, we can't, like I think I said before, we can't just stop with election and say, well, we're good. I mean, that's just fine. All we need is election. Well, God does much more in Scripture, right? The story doesn't end with him in eternity past just choosing some, and then we're just good to go. We don't hear from God anymore, and we'll just figure it out in the end. That's, that's not the way it happens. And so the Spirit today applies these benefits that Christ has won, that is his obedience and his death for the elect, and this happens through the act of what we call regeneration. And so in regeneration, our eyes are opened, our hearts of stone are made hearts of flesh, and we believe, and we call this effectual grace. Instead of giving the entire 
definition from the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is something called the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism, and question 31 of the Shorter Catechism actually gives a really concise definition of what effectual calling is. And it says this, Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills. Okay, if you want to put like kind of a M dash or a colon there, you can then move on to the next. He doth, that is because or since this happens, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Now, I'm going to make a case for why you would want to put an M dash there or a colon, because what we will end up making the case is that spiritual birth precedes spiritual sight. And if you're wondering what that means, we'll talk about it in just a moment. Okay, so the first point is this, the Father chooses, Christ secures, and the Spirit applies. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. Uh, This would be the preaching of the gospel through Paul. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. He's talking obviously to Israel here. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay, so here in Acts chapter 13, the larger context is that Paul is now preaching the gospel. There is a group of Jews, maybe it's large, maybe it's small, I don't really know, but they are really upset that Paul is preaching to these Gentiles. And As we move towards verse 48, what we end up seeing is that Paul's attention diverts from the Jews to the Gentiles, and now considering the Gentiles only, we see that there are some who believed and some who didn't. And so what we see here is that the gospel is preached and only those who have been appointed believe, okay? And in Colossians 2, what we see here is that in Christ, God makes us alive and cancels our debt. And that's something that actually happens. And the reason I say it's something that actually happens is because we're given a timestamp of when this takes place. And here Paul says it is nailed to the cross. There is an actual canceling. There is an actual purchasing of our life at the cross. And then in Ezekiel 36, uh, and you can see this again in Ezekiel 11 and Jeremiah 31. This is simply kind of an exposition of the new covenant, which is given in full in Jeremiah 31. But in the new covenant, what we see is that the Spirit will cleanse us of sin and remove our dead heart. And if you look at this text, Ezekiel 11 and Jeremiah 31, you'll see that all of these things are causal. That is, these are things that happen to us, not things that we can do ourselves. So at this point, what I would say is that No matter where you really land on your understanding of um, God's plan of redemption, in one way or another, you agree with all of these things. Essentially, the case I'm making here at the beginning is that our salvation is the work of the the Trinity. 
I, I think everyone in this room would look at these things and say, yeah, that's absolutely true. Maybe we just would disagree on exactly how, but our salvation is a work of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in perfect and holy unity. And so we are the, the center of God's full attention when it comes to salvation. Every person of the Trinity is involved in redeeming us. So point two, uh, regeneration is the work of the Spirit whereby the dead are made alive. Maybe you thought, okay, he's going to talk about Ephesians 2. We'll, we'll do that later, actually. But for now, Titus 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. Titus 3, 3-7 says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, and through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Okay, regeneration is seen here clearly as a passing from one station to another. So there, there is a place that we are before we are regenerated, and through regeneration, that is the new birth, we are moved to a new station. The way Paul says it here in Titus is this, that station that you were once in can be summed up as sin. So you, you, you were dead in your sin, and now you are in Christ. There is a former way, and now there is a way that you are living in. And so those who were old have been made new. And what I want to tell you is that, and you'll understand if you know anything about any of this, I'm using these words very specifically, regeneration is operative, not cooperative. So there is a sense in Titus here, and I think you can see it in other places, that our regeneration, that is going from the old to the new, is completely God's work through the Spirit. There's, there's really no way in which we cooperate in this. Now, at this point, maybe you're saying, yeah, but what about faith? Well, hang on to that question because we'll answer that. But at least as we, we look at this actual work of going from, from dead to alive, from old to new, there is no cooperation on our part. It, it's not as if we have um, done any of this work ourselves to pass over to newness of life. But then in 2 Corinthians, we see that Paul uses this word, all this is from God. So, so faith, according to Paul's mind, is not seen as the final ingredient to salvation. That is, that salvation is effective like up to a certain point, and then we must cooperate with him. I think, and we'll make the case here moving forward, that, that faith is our response to these things. And so that's obviously a huge contention there between different camps, but I think that's what we're seeing here. So let's ask a question about faith, though, in Titus 3, 5. So uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we're asking this question, okay, well, if this is completely operative and not cooperative, what about faith? 
So here's a question then. It does seem like the Bible clearly views faith as an action that can be counted as righteous. So you have something like Hebrews 11, you have something like Hebrews 12, you have something like Genesis 15 and 18, and you see that these men, in particular, you have Abel in um, Hebrews 11, and then you have, obviously, Abraham in Genesis 15 and 18. Their faith is counted as righteousness. And so there at least is a sense in which the Bible looks at the act of faith as a righteous act. I, I think we would probably all agree with that, right? Saving faith, faith that leads to salvation, is something that is righteous. God, God looks at it, and he is pleased with it, okay? But here in verse 5 of Titus 3, he says he saved us not because of works done in righteousness. So I think at least we need to be asking a question, okay, well, which of these things is true then? Is faith actually a righteous act that is pleasing to God? Is, is Abel really able to exert faith and his faith be seen as or counted as righteous, or is nothing we do righteous leading unto salvation? So, so what is true? Well, uh, I didn't write it down, but take some time. This will be helpful. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So uh, both actually can be true if faith doesn't originate in us. I think what Hebrews chapter 12 is saying here is that your faith is, is founded, obviously, but also perfected in Christ. So there is an originating point of your faith that stands outside of yourself. So what we can say is that there are no acts of righteousness which can save us. We are saved only by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and yet our faith can also be counted as righteous if our faith is not a work of our own, if it does not originate within the old man, okay? That'll, that'll be important. But then you have something like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, and this is just kind of to point to something biblical that, that talks about God's preparation of our good works. At the end of Ephesians 2, that famous passage in verse 10, uh, Paul tells us that God has prepared, because of all of these things that he has done in us, taking enemies and making them sons, he prepares good works beforehand that we should walk in them. And so all of us would believe in one way or another that God, before the foundation of the earth, has prepared good works for his children to, to walk in them. Not just like, hey, here are some opportunities, but actual good works that he has prepared for us that we should walk in those. Number three, spiritual birth precedes spiritual sight. So John chapter three, which is a famous passage, and then 1 Peter chapter one, John three, one through eight. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Isn't that a strange way to answer somebody? Verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. First Peter chapter 1, 3 and 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, once again, just step away from anything that I'm making a case for. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Is that not encouraging? I don't know what you have been going through this past week, but like I said, it has been an emotional one for me, just looking at where I came from, seeing people. Uh, I visited a dear friend who was in a nursing home that should probably be condemned. It should not be open. And yet, for 360 some days now, he is laid in that bed. And yet he is a believer. And his inheritance is being guarded through faith unto salvation. That's very encouraging. All right, so back to this now, though. So spiritual birth precedes spiritual sight. An example of regeneration being operative. Here's an example of what we mean when we say it's operative, not cooperative. Just like death, and again, we can argue that point, but Jesus is using birth here, like he does death, as an explanation of salvation. So what he means to say is that death does not require our approval or our cooperation, and in particular here, as he's speaking to Nicodemus, neither does birth. There is nothing that we do, and okay, let's just remove ourselves from any kind of spirituality in terms of looking at salvation and just talk about the physical acts. None of us really can choose when we die. In fact, you can't even kill yourself without the help of something else. So you would either have to have someone administer drugs to you, or you would have to do it another way, like committing suicide. It's not something that you can just choose and it happens, right? So the same is true for birth. Jesus is using this example spiritually, though, to show us that it doesn't require our approval or cooperation. So new birth here precedes sight and entrance. I want you to note that in John chapter 3, he says, and I, I think it's interesting how in verse 3, he says, see the kingdom of God, and then in verse 5, he says, enter the kingdom of God. I, I do think that's significant to use the kingdom and two different ways of either seeing or entering separately in the same paragraph. They obviously don't mean exactly the same thing. So it's, it's actually through this new birth that you're able not only to enter the kingdom, but, but even to see the kingdom, right? And I don't think he means like get there someday and see it in person. I think pretty clearly as it proceeds entering, it is an actual seeing, a, a grasping of, a, a looking at, like an actual with open eyes understanding these things, right? And then in verse 8, I think this is important too. And I think sometimes we can maybe skip over this just as we're reading our Bibles because it seems like, okay, I don't really know what this means. But I just think as we read it plainly, it says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I think what that is saying is that the Spirit is in no way reliant on us for the act of regeneration. So no matter where you land, what your camp is, I do think that's a, a pretty clear understanding of God's power in salvation, and that is that he doesn't require our, our cooperation. But then in First Peter, Peter tells us that this work of new birth is caused by God. So it, it's something that he has caused us to do, right? This, this new birth, this being born again, 
it's it's causal. It, it comes from him. It originates with him. And then you can look, obviously, at Ephesians chapter 1, but one thing I would note here in particular is that a lot of that language in Ephesians 1 is adoption terminology. And here you have many of that, that same language. So this inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that's kept for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. It, it seems to me that this passage, like Ephesians 1, is referring to the fact that we have been like, chosen for this that we have been adopted unto this, that this inheritance, this thing that God has given to us through this act of regeneration is something that he has chosen us unto. And the reason I say adoption language is because, again, nobody is themselves choosing to be adopted. That's, that's not how it works. You, you can't be in an orphanage and say, you know what, today I'm going to be adopted. So I just think that that's important to look at. Uh, number four, Faith is the expression of one who has been made alive. So Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, 8 and 9, we've read it, I don't know, probably 100 times now in four weeks. But Ephesians 2 and Acts 16, starting here in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Acts 16, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, that's Paul, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Okay, so faith is the expression of one who has been made alive. In Ephesians 2, here you can see that the act of faith is grounded in what God has done for us in Christ, and all of God's people said amen. But we are made alive because of Christ's work, which is God's grace to us. So salvation in total is God's gift. There's no kind of distinction of the separation of how these things happen or when they happen. We are just told that God's grace to us because of Christ's work for us, is God's gift in total. None of these things can be attributed to us for the purpose of us not being able to boast about these things. So you, you have no part in saving yourself or regenerating yourself or coming from the old to the new strictly for the purpose of, well, number one, God's glory, but number two, because you will boast about it if you do. You will be a prideful people. And the reason we know that is not because necessarily of our experience on this earth, but simply because Adam and Eve, in their perfection, boasted about their abilities over God. Right? They, they chose the thing they weren't supposed to choose. Okay, now here, though, what we also see through these two things, and in particular with Lydia, is that faith itself isn't salvation. It's the response to God's grace, which is our salvation. So that, in Ephesians 2, I think is really important our faith is not the thing that saves us. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm saying if all there is is faith in God, that is not what saves. We know that because we have all of the Old Testament. So what is counted as righteousness? Their faith is counted as righteousness, but what is the securing of that? The death of Christ on the cross, right? It has to be and can only ever be his death that actually purchases and wins our salvation. So, I think what you see here is that faith is then the response to that, right? It's the, it's the real unforced response of one who has been made alive. So what faith does is it is our embrace of our divine sonship. 
It is our eyes being opened, our hearts being made flesh and beating with life, and faith is our response to what God has done. Number five, putting off the old self is always a post-conversion command. So Romans chapter six, Ephesians four, for if we, this is Romans six, obviously, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, that is Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Ephesians 4, now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I think this is a really important point that every time we see the old self, we see it either as something that you are stuck in or enslaved to or something that you are called to put off. Now, the point here is that putting off the old self is always a post-conversion command. So according to Paul, prior to conversion, we are not only dead in our sin, but here in particular, the word he uses is enslavement, right? We are slaves to sin. Oh, and he actually also says our minds are darkened. But what we see happening is that the Spirit enlightens us to see and desire that which is true. So our putting off of sin is an expression of our union with Christ. So anything that is the new man has to be something that only the new man can do, which means the old man can't do what the new man is supposed to do. So there is this moment that needs to happen that we call regeneration, where the old passes away, not in its entirety, but we are crucified with Christ, right? We die to sin, it enslaves us no more, and then we are set free to live a life of putting off the old man. We are now given and made able to live this life of righteousness that God has called us to in Christ. Now, here's the point. Regeneration is the act that enables us to desire God over ourselves. We will never desire God over ourselves unless we are regenerated, unless we are made new. So here's kind of how I would sum it up. Regeneration precedes righteous behavior. I think that's important because I do think faith is a righteous act. The reason I say that, now you can have all kinds of different faith that is not righteous. You can have a faith that is in uh, a God that is not the real and true God. You can have faith in a Jesus who is not the real and true Jesus. That is, I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to be a good person because Jesus lived a good life and he's a good person. That's not saving faith. That's not, that's not a righteous faith. But there is a faith that is counted as righteous, and we know that it's counted as righteous because Jesus is the perfecter and founder of that kind of faith. Of that type of faith, there is um, evidence that it originates with Christ. So regeneration precedes righteous behavior, and I think what the case is being made here is that regeneration precedes even saving faith. That saving faith is a gift of God given to us that we might believe in the work that he has done for us. Okay, number six, let's just skip that because it's honestly not that important. 
Um, I mean, it's, that's, that's not true. It is important, but it's the least important of all of these things. Um, you can look at that and you can read it and you can try to figure out what I meant by that. But, um, or you can just straight up disagree with it. That's fine too. But you should just spend some time in Matthew chapter nine. But for now, we're not. Number seven, the gospel has an outward call and an effectual call. This kind of sums up how we can make these claims and yet still be people who preach the gospel. So for instance, at this church, you will, hopefully every Sunday, if we ever are not preaching the gospel, I'm sure we are repenting of that. But the goal would be, no matter where we are in any passage of scripture, that the gospel is made clear and evident. How can I say all of these things and yet still freely offer the gospel to anyone who would believe? Well, I think here is our our evidence. So Matthew 11, John 6, Matthew 19, starting in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So obviously there, Jesus is saying simply, anyone who will come to me, and if you are laboring, and if you are heavy laden, that is, if you have extreme burdens, come to me, and you will find rest in me, you will find peace in me, you will find hope in me. He says that to a crowd. I don't think he's looking at them like the Terminator with his little special eyes and scanning people and applying that just to those random people that have been called unto salvation. He is simply saying that to everyone who has gathered. I don't think anybody can refute or deny that. But in John 6, he says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then in Matthew 19, he says this, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. But here's the, here's the thing. No matter where we land, we have to contend that scripture seems to distinguish between the preaching of the gospel to all peoples and who will actually hear and be saved. So no matter who you are, you actually do believe that there are those who are given the gospel call, and then there are those who will hear it and believe it. Now, we will disagree on how exactly that happens, but all of us will agree that not everyone who hears the gospel will believe the gospel. So there is seemingly this understanding of a general call and those who will be saved by it, right? So I, I just think to be fair, we do want to see that Jesus can rightly say here, anyone who comes to me, anyone who's heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And then he can also turn around to a group of people and say, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, right? Those, those seem to be two kind of different things, but I think they stand in, in unity with one another. So my point here is that there is a limitation by all put upon the preaching of the gospel, right? The doctrines of grace simply teach that by God's sovereign choice, he ordains who they are right? So it is, it is his gospel. So what we would say is, yeah, absolutely. The gospel can go forth in a general way, in an outward way. I can stand in a pulpit. I can stand here. And I can say, anyone who will place their faith in Christ and repent of their sins can be saved. I can say that truly, knowing that not everyone will be saved. And what I would say is that the ones who will be saved are not necessarily, so hear me, not necessarily just the ones who will by faith, trust in him, but particularly by faith, those who trust in him, right? So there's no contingency in my understanding of faith being the thing at that moment that saves them, 
I would say that their faith is a response to the work of the Spirit in them, moving them and applying the work of the gospel to them.